Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are finishing up this chapter this morning. We're looking at verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 11, 1. And as I tell you every week, I will tell you this week, I know it's going to help you to have your Bible open and to be reading along there with me as we look at God's word together. Let's pray before we do and ask him to be present with us and to be powerfully working in us as we hear his word preached this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, what we do now, we recognize is supernatural. We recognize that this is not a lecture. This is not uh, your minister just ranting about thoughts. It's not a random stream of consciousness. It's not mere words of human wisdom, but it is the very word of God. And we thank you that as your word is read and proclaimed that you are speaking. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to depend on you, both uh, the one who preaches and those that hear. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would know that you're in this place, that we would recognize the moving of your spirit. We ask that we would leave this place refreshed and built up, instructed, uh, perhaps corrected where we need to be corrected, Lord that we would put ourselves under your word and that we would tremble under it and that we would humbly submit ourselves to you, Father, and to the Christ of Scripture. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would know your resurrection life at work in us and that you would make us more mature as believers and that you would strengthen us in faith and that you would accomplish all your purposes. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 23, there the Apostle Paul, picking up on what he started back in chapter 6, says to the Corinthians, now at the conclusion of this section, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder if you have ever found yourself in a situation where you have felt like you were unsure of whether a decision you were about to make was the will of God. Or maybe you had someone come to you. I'm sure you've had people come to you over the years and say to you, how do I know? How do I know whether this is God's will? Or how do I know which decision I should make? And how do I know if I'm in God's will? And you know, the question to ask it is really all-encompassing, isn't it? Every single thing that we do ought to fall under the rubric of being in God's will. 
You hear that question asked? You've probably asked that question. I know as a young Christian, I was very blessed to stumble across a series of questions that Sinclair Ferguson gave in his book, Discovering God's Will, in order to help guide an individual through the question, how do I know that I'm in God's will? And it's almost so simple, the answer that he gives, the series of diagnostic questions he gives, almost makes asking the question, how do I know that I'm in God's will, unnecessary when you start to make these questions a part of your being and your fabric. And this is what Ferguson says. He says, anytime you're faced with a decision, you should ask first, is it lawful? Is this in accord with God's word? Does God's word forbid this? Is it lawful? Does God's word condemn this? If God's word says I can't do something, then it's always out of accord with God's will for me to do that. So first question, is it lawful? Then he says, is it beneficial? Is this something good for me? Is it going to benefit me? There's actually an appropriate care about the well-being of yourself. And then Ferguson says, you should ask, is it enslaving? Is it something that brings me down and ensnares me? Something that takes away my life? And then he says, you should ask, is it consistent with the lordship of Christ? Everything that we do, we're bringing Christ into. And so is this decision I'm faced with something that's consistent with bringing Jesus into it? Is it something that he would not be ashamed of and it ought to shame me for bringing him into it? And then he says, we ought to ask the question, is it beneficial to others? My actions are going to have ramifications. Are these things helpful to others? Do they benefit other people? Or am I only concerned about what I want to do? And then he says, we ought to ask the question, is it consistent with the example of Christ and the apostles? Do we see Jesus and the apostles living out things analogous to what we might want to do? And then finally, he says, we have to ask the question, is it for the glory of God? Is it for the glory of God? I found those seven or so questions to be exceedingly helpful because there's no decision that you will be faced with. There's no outworking of your Christian life that can't be answered by those questions to know whether you're in the will of God or not. And those questions drive us back to the scripture. And it's interesting because as I thought about these questions in preparation for this message, I didn't realize that Ferguson had lifted these questions directly out of 1 Corinthians 6 through 9. And almost all of these questions can be unearthed in verses 23 through 11.1. Almost all these questions are there. Notice that Paul will, will talk about lawfulness. All things are lawful, not all things are beneficial. Beneficial to self, beneficial to others. And uh, are these things that are going to help other people? Are these things that are in accord with Christ and the Apostle? Notice verse 1 of chapter 11. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do Christ and the Apostles imitate these things? And then notice uh, verse 31, the all-important one. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so most of these questions are right in this text that we're reading tonight in this passage, though not intended by Paul to be a book on discovering God's will, nevertheless comes with that force that whatever you are doing in life, whatever actions, whatever decisions, whatever thoughts, whatever you are doing, whatever you are doing ought to be in accord with what Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11. 1. Well, we're going to see just two things today. We're going to look at these verses under two things. First, we're going to see... Um, gospel freedom defined, and then we're going to see gospel motives defined, gospel freedom defined, 
and then gospel motives defined. Well, notice there in verse 23, Paul's taken up this slogan, all things are lawful. That was what the Corinthians were coming back to him with. They were constantly coming back saying, Paul, everything's lawful. How dare you tell me not to do something? Everything's lawful. I can do whatever I want to do. Who are you to tell me? You told us we were free. You told us we weren't under the law. You told us that, who are you, Paul? And Paul takes up this objection and he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. And what Paul is going to do is he is going to defend the freedom that Christians have, but then he is going to couch that under the rubric of our existence to live to God's glory and service to others to win them. Now, we've already seen a lot of that. We've already talked about what it means to live for the sake of the gospel. We've seen what it means to think about the well-being of others for their salvation. Paul is now, interestingly, going to defend the freedom that we have in the gospel. And you might think, you might think Paul contradicts himself. Notice there in verse 23, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Now, the first two verses there, verse 23 and 24, you, you understand not all things are helpful to people. Not all things are for the well-being of others. Not all things are thinking about other people in their respective situations. Not all things are, that, that are, we're, we're entitled to do are going to benefit other people around us. And so you might expect Paul then to say, so you know what? It's better just not to eat meat. You know, the fundamentalists love this passage and twist it wickedly to say we should never eat certain things. We should never drink because we might offend someone. That is not what Paul's saying. In fact, notice what Paul says. Paul says in verse 25, on the tale of saying seek others good, eat whatever's sold in the marketplace. Notice, notice that strange, you might expect Paul to say, so don't eat what's sold in the marketplace and don't eat in front of certain people. But Paul actually says, let's seek the we- other's well-being and so eat whatever's sold in the marketplace. That seems strange, doesn't it? I might be seeking the well-being of others by eating and drinking in their presence. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying I may actually be seeking their well-being not by abstaining, but by moving forward and eating it with a good conscience. Now, here's the reason. Here's the reason. If we look at created things as things that are bad in and of themselves, we are denying the Godship of God. Notice what Paul does. Notice what he does. In verse 26, he quotes Psalm 24. It's one of the most interesting Old Testament citations in the whole New Testament. He quotes Psalm 24, 1, in verse 26. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And what is Paul saying? Paul is saying, God is creator of everything. And everything that he's made is good. And he's given us all those things to enjoy. Calvin actually will say, God gives all his sons and daughters everything that's in his hand to enjoy. And to say otherwise, to make those things look as if they're bad in and of themselves, is actually to make God look ungodlike. It's actually to blame God for creating things that are bad. It's actually to say, God has not made all things good. Some things are bad, and you know what? These things are bad, and so functionally, I'm going to treat them like they're bad, and I'm going to treat them like they're wrong. And Paul's saying, listen, it's wrong for you to go worship another God in a sacrificial meal at a pagan temple, but it's not wrong for you to eat any meat, even if it's been sacrificed to a pagan God. Because 
Nothing defiles food. Nothing defiles food. That food doesn't get some kind of cursed stigma over it because of the pagan god that it was sacrificed to. Paul says, God made the meat. God makes the drink. God gives us everything freely to enjoy, and so it may be looking out for the well-being of others if you actually partake with a good conscience because you're witnessing to the goodness of God. You're witnessing to the godness of God. You're witnessing to the fact that God has made all things and that God has put his blessing upon them. Now, I know that we don't live in this society, and I know that we don't have the same problems they do, but I know we have the same conscience in us, and I know we have the same questions of conscience, and I know that we're often faced with whether we should do something or not. And I think it's interesting that when Paul defends the freedom that you have and that I have in the gospel, that we are most free, that we are those that ought to be able to enjoy things to the full. I remember when Anna and I first moved to Philadelphia, I met a minister who was on staff at that time at 10th Press where I was, and uh, his name was Jonathan, and Jonathan had us over one night, and we had a huge Turkish meal from this Turkish bistro, and 10 of us were sitting around the table, and I'll never forget Jonathan's prayer. I'd never heard someone pray like this. He prayed with the most sincerity. He said, oh God, we thank you so much for this just taste of your goodness. We thank you that this meal, this feast before us is a a small little down payment of the goodness that we have in you. It was the most wonderful prayer. And what Jonathan was doing, Jonathan was praying in accord with what Paul is saying. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. And he has given it to the sons of men. And he has specially given it to you as his children. Christians ought to be not the ones who try to abstain from everything the most, but who enjoy the most lawfully. Christians ought to be the people. I think what was so refreshing for me when I heard Jonathan pray is that I had almost adopted over the years an ascetic view of self-denial that made it seem like somehow it's wrong for me to enjoy this feast with friends. And Paul says, listen, Paul says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Everything is good. Everything is to be enjoyed. Everything that God does not forbid, like sexual sin and all the things that are very clearly forbidden, everything he's created is to be enjoyed. And you know what? You actually bring glory to God when you enjoy those things with thanksgiving. Notice what Paul says. He says in verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? And you know what? I think also, I think it's actually a witness to the unbelieving world when you pray a prayer like my friend Jonathan prayed at that table and you're at a place and you have a feast before you and you have a lavish, a lavish meal before you in fellowship and there are unbelievers there and you thank God and you say, oh God, thank you. Thank you for giving us such good things. Thank you for creating such good things. Thank you for your bounty. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for feeding us. Thank you for giving us things that taste good to our palates, even after the fall. Have you ever thought about that? God's common grace is so big that even after Adam wickedly messed everything up, food still tastes amazing. Food still tastes amazing. Why? Because God is amazing. Why does food taste good? Because God is good. Listen, I can't even believe I'm preaching this. 
food is good because God is good. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying. I get to tweet this day. I preach about how good food is. And everybody's going to call me with their complaints about worrying about what I'm preaching there at New Covenant. God is good. God has given us good things. Yes, we can abuse them. Yes, we can be enslaved to them. Yes, we can use them wickedly. But in and of themselves, they are good and they are indifferent, actually, morally. And Paul says, you know what? If you want to seek the well-being of others, it may actually do good for you to eat whatever's sold in the marketplace, even if you know it's been sacrificed to an idol. You don't have to avoid the, the Thai fusion restaurant with the Buddha doll. You don't. You don't. I know you've walked in there and thought, I don't know if this is right, because I've done that. I know that. If you're a Christian, I believe you've probably done that. Paul is saying, don't worry about it. Witness to the people that go in there. Give them a Bible. Build a relationship with them. Eat the food. Thank Jesus for their Thai food, even if they made it to Buddha. Thank them publicly for it. Because what Paul is saying is that in seeking others' goods and in seeking to build them up, we don't flaunt, we don't flaunt our freedoms, but we use them for God's glory. We use them for God's glory. We don't go in there to make a point. We don't try to prove a point to flaunt my right. But we have God ever before us. And as we have God before us, we bear witness to his goodness. We show others the freedoms that we have. We make God look gracious and bountiful and full of goodness, which he is. And notice, Paul even says that this has an impact on unbelievers. Notice what he says in this passage, verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Now, not only do I think we have a hard time sitting with unbelievers in America, we're so sectarian as Christians often. Not only do I think we have a hard time sitting and feasting with them for the purpose of the gospel, I wonder if sometimes we would have a hard time in an environment with them eating certain food while they're drinking or being, and and Paul's saying, listen, if you go in, if you go to an unbeliever's house, there's an assumption that you're going to be sitting with your unbelieving neighbors. You're going to be grilling out with them. There's an assumption for the sake of the gospel. You are going to be sitting with unbelievers and they're going to like you and invite you over. They're going to like you enough to invite you over. There's There's a question to take home. Why don't any of my neighbors invite us over? They're going to like you enough And Paul says, think about this, the Apostle Paul got invited over by unbelievers. And he says, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever's set before you without raising questions on the ground of conscience. Now, there's a question about the freedom uh, that we have in Christ and the conscience here. And this passage may seem like it's a passage all about your conscience. On the surface, it may seem that it's all about, do I have a good enough conscience to sit here and eat this food? Do I have a good enough conscience to go and sit down with these people? Is my conscience with knowledge? Conscience means with knowledge. Con, science, with knowledge. Is my inner man informed? Do I have the knowledge to be able to do these things? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's actually saying that the unbeliever who invites you in has a certain knowledge of things, and his knowledge is skewed and warped, and that his knowledge will actually look at you doing certain things and judge you for it. That the unbelieving world will actually look and will judge you for things. And so Paul says, when you go to their house, don't ask them, has this been sacrificed to the Buddha? Don't ask them. Do you guys worship Buddha Buddha and sacrifice your pad thai to him on the grill of your... 
gratefulness to Buddha? You don't ask for conscience sake. You go in, you eat what's set before you, you seek the good of them. You don't ask questions for conscience sake, but notice what Paul says. He says in verse 29, I do not mean your conscience. He's already dealt with your conscience. He's already dealt with how our conscience ought to be informed. Now what he's saying is, I do not mean your conscience. He says, but his. Now, a lot of people take this passage and they'll say, see, Paul's saying if you have a weaker brother and he can't go in here, don't eat or drink around him. That's not what Paul's saying. He's talking about the unbeliever. He's not talking about the weak. He says if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, go in there, don't ask any questions for conscience sake. Eat whatever's put before you. And then he says, he says, have a missional meal. That's what he says. Have a missional meal with the Buddha sacrificed pad thai. And then he says, and then he says, but I don't speak about your conscience. I speak about his conscience. Now, this is where it gets very tricky. Notice what Paul says. He says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? You see, what he's saying is there are a lot of unbelievers, and you've met them. That You've maybe sat at a table with them. Maybe you've had a drink with them, and they're like, I thought you were a Christian. You shouldn't drink. Their conscience is judging you sinfully. And so Paul's saying, if they come and they say, this was sacrificed to an idol, and come on, Paul, I thought, I thought you couldn't eat meat sacrificed to an idol, and they judge him when he does with thanksgiving, Paul said, it's better not to go there. If their motive, if their conscience is defiled, if their motives are defiled, it would be better for you not to eat in their presence if they're trying to judge you for doing so. If they tell you what it is, if they put you in a situation where they're saying, hey, Paul, let me test you with this, and then Paul eats out of thanksgiving, and then they judge him. Notice what Paul says. I do not mean your conscience, but his, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Now, there's a world of theology here. You know, one of the greatest things about the reform world that I love the most is that we, we talk about liberty of conscience. And our Westminster Confession says that God alone is Lord of the conscience. And that means you don't get to bind my conscience. Now, God's word gets to bind my conscience. God gets to bind my conscience. And as a brother and sister, you may come to me with a correction and you may say, brother, God's word says this. I'm concerned about this. But no one gets to bind your conscience. And so Paul says, for the sake of liberty of conscience, it would be better to abstain if somebody's coming in judging you or trying to bind your conscience. It would be better for you to withhold. And here's why. I think it's all for gospel witness to Jesus Christ. I don't think Paul really cares about whether somebody judged his liberty or not. I don't think Paul was super concerned with what people said about him. It's so funny how concerned we are. What is this person going to think if this person says this about me and blah, blah. Who cares? You've got to answer to God. You've got to answer to God. There's a freedom that we have in Christ. We don't get our functional approval from other people, what they think about us. We don't get our functional approval from how they, they aim insults at us, what they say about us. We don't get our functional approval from what they tell us to do. We don't. Be free in that. Listen to me. This is good. You are free. You are free. You have to answer to the Lord. Our consciences are free. Paul, though, I think says this because Paul is so zealous to win people to Jesus Christ. Paul desperately 
wanted to win people, even people that would judge him, even people that would bind his conscience, even people that would try to judge him for what he was doing in Thanksgiving. And so there's this beautiful harmony. Know that you're free in the gospel. Know the freedom you have. Know that God has made all things. Know the goodness and the bounty of God. Know what God has for you and your relationship with him. But then recognize your situations. Recognize the atmosphere in which you are. Because it may be better for you to abstain from something if someone's going to judge you for that and therefore put a breach between you and the gospel and them. I think that's what Paul's saying. It's a tough passage. I think that's what Paul's saying. And notice, now he gives us gospel motive in verse 31 to 33. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the first motive. Everything that we do should be to the glory of God. That means that as we live in accord with his word, we bring him glory. We make him look great. We extol his name. People around us say, that person knows God. That person has a relationship with God. That person has a great God. That person's different from other people. That person is seeking not his own things, but the glory of God. More important than seeking your own or the well-being of others is seeking God's glory. Let me say that. Because I think most of us know what it is to seek our own. Some of us know what it is to seek the well-being of others. Both of those things are subservient to seeking God's glory. You were created for the triune God. You were created for the triune God. Paul will say of him and through him and to him are all things. Of him and through him and to him are all things. We're made by him. We were made for him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one that upholds all things, carries all things along. He is the God that orders whatsoever happens in our lives. And he has given us life and breath and all things so that we might bring him glory. And you know who's the only person that's ever done that perfectly is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ always did the will of his Father. He always sought the glory of his Father. Everything that he did He sought to bring his father glory, and he did it, and he brought him glory. And you know when he brought him glory the most is when he hung on the cross for you. Jesus brought God the Father the most glory when he hung on the cross for you. He was glorifying God in his judgment death on the tree. And that means he was willing to do the hard things, He was willing to do the self-sacrificial things. He did all of that for your redemption. But he did all of it for the glory of the Father. And the Father saw the sacrifice of the Son. And the Father saw the blood. And the Father was glorified and satisfied. His wrath was propitiated. He He was delighted in the sacrifice of his Son. Paul will actually tell us in Ephesians 5, that Christ was a sweet-smelling aroma in his death on the cross. That when he died, just like the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, that, that the smoke went up, the fire and the burnt offering, and there was an aroma that went up, and it was symbolic of the aroma of the sacrifice going up to God the Father. And when Jesus hung on the cross, there was a sweet-smelling aroma to the righteous God. And he was glorified. And and. He got the most glory from that. And that serves as an example, doesn't it? Notice what Paul says in verse 11. Be imitators of me 
as I am of Christ. You see how Paul walks back from his own experience to the Lord Jesus. And he walks back out of his own experience and he says, it is him that we ultimately are looking to. It is him that we are ultimately seeking to emulate. And his motivation was always the glory of the Father. Always his motivation. You ever thought about this? Jesus is God, but he never sought his own in the incarnation. The only thing he sought of his own in the incarnation was his own and his Father's glory. It was the only thing he sought, selfishly. Jesus was absolutely selfless, except he sought his own glory and the glory of his Father. And you know what? Paul says even things like eating and drinking, menial things, really insignificant things. I mean, Paul's basically said food and drink are insignificant. We make such a big deal out of food and drink. Paul says whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all of the glory of God. And then secondly, and in connection, he says give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. This is hard. This is hard. Not only are we to seek God's glory in all that we do, but it'd be very easy for us to slide into a sort of, I don't care what you think, I'm serving God. That would be a very easy thing for us to slide into. I don't care what anybody thinks. And there's an appropriate, let no man judge me, and I stand before God, and God will be my judge. There's an appropriateness to that. But Paul says, as you are seeking the glory of God, you will also seek not to bring an offense to other people, whether Jews or Greeks, that's everybody, or to the church of God, outside, within, wherever it is. Now, if we get that in the gospel, our community and our fellowship will be transformed amazingly. Think about how many problems occur just in the church because people are seeking their own things. Because people want to assert themselves and get their own way and do their own thing. And if we think, you know what, my first and foremost desire is to bring glory to God, I'm going to be willing to lay aside my personal preferences. I'm even going to be willing to lay aside my opinions. That's nearly impossible for me. You know that it's hard to fish an opinion out of me. Um, Nearly impossible. But as we get this, our fellowships will be transformed because what we'll be thinking about is our creator, our redeemer, and his people. And then I'm going to think, how can I best help this person? And you know what? How I may best help you may not be what you think you need. Let me say that. I just did. (laughs) What I may need to do to best help you may not be what you think you need most. Again, we come back to the scriptures, right? Let me close with Sinclair Ferguson's questions for us. When we're faced with a decision, whatever it is, as we seek to live out our Christian life in this world, let's learn these these questions that we would ask ourselves. Is this lawful? Is it in accord with God's word? Is it beneficial? Is it going to help? Me? Is it beneficial to others? Is it going to help others? Is it going to enslave? Is it consistent with the lordship of Christ? Is it consistent with the example of Christ and the apostles? Is it for the glory of God? You know what? I'm convinced if we get those principles out of 1 Corinthians, 
and we seek to follow the Lord Jesus by faith and apply those, we're going to ask a whole lot less, what is God's will for me? And we're going to be striving after fulfilling it. It really takes the burden off. It really takes the burden off. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good, and how, how we fail to see your goodness, Lord. How we fail to see that the earth is yours in all its fullness. How we fail to see the freedom and the liberty that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Our God, we need to have our minds and our hearts renewed and realigned. We need most desperately to see that the two great motives of our lives ought to be to seek your glory and to seek the well-being of others that they may be saved. Oh God, we pray that you would write these truths indelibly on our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to meditate on these things, to believe in the Lord Jesus who did all things necessary for us that we might live out this Christian life. And our Father, we pray that you would give us power to affect these things in our lives. Transform this community through these principles and through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.